from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Omaha, Nebraska, on this week's edition, a preview of next week's Global Climate Action Summit, designing sustainability's first product recall, the future of autonomous vehicles from GM's former head of R&D, and why our editor-at-large went to work for the Swedish government. It's the Stockholm Syndrome, this week on 350. It's September 7th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from, well, halfway across the USA is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. How are you? Are you? Is it warm in Omaha? It's um, warm, but it's also been raining here. I've only been here for a, a couple of days, but it's been raining here for the, since the past weekend. So a lot of this big thunderstorm, rainy thing going on, but... It's nice and warm. So, you know, still summer here, I guess. Definitely and, uh, here, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've been hearing. It's, you know, I have to say, it makes me appreciate every day more and more the being in the Bay Area where it's just been 72 and sunny. I hate to rub it in. Quite lovely. Uh, for, it was quite lovely there. Yes. Every day in, in Oakland, California. Um, how was your Labor Day? My Labor Day was very good. I actually got to spend at least half of the actual day sitting in the pool. So that was lovely. Nice. <laughs> Not my pool, someone else's pool, but um, that was, it was a great, uh, a great way to reflect. I, I spent some time reading and uh, weeding too, uh, taking care of my perennials. So it was lovely. And, and actually, you know, I know this is not, no big shakes for you, but um, I got to see some hummingbirds that coming, I guess they're coming through. They, they go up to Maine and then they come back down through New Jersey when they're they're going somewhere else. I don't even know where they go, but got to watch one for about five minutes, just kind of working my my backyard patio. So Humming, hummingbirds are always great shakes any time of year, as often as one sees them. Yeah, I usually get goldfinch out my front window, um, which I spend a lot of time watching when I'm thinking. <laughs> so they, they they like my echinacea. So yeah, anyway, very lovely weekend. And what about you? You know, pretty chill, but, you know, just getting ready for September. I mean, I left the day after Labor Day to fly here to Omaha. And, um, you know, it just, it's, it's going to be crazy. I was, uh, I'll be in the office exactly two days during the month of September and it's going to be out and about. One of the part of it's going to be at, uh, GCAS, the Global Climate Action Summit that I mentioned earlier. And we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, you know, so just sort of enjoying the last few days of non craziness. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It is a little <laughs> naughty already. It definitely started with a bang. <laughs> Have safe travels. I know where you're uh, we going to uh, G-Ben meetings, right? Lots of G-Ben meetings later this month. Well, right now. That's why I'm here. Well, in but others too. I, I know you're, yeah. So GBN, the Green Biz Executive Network, our membership group of sustainability executives from big companies that we bring together in small groups several times a year for, as I, they like to call it, 
peer-to-peer learning, and they also like to call it group therapy. <laughs> and uh, this week's meeting is being hosted by Union Pacific Railroad, um, which is not a company you hear a lot about from a sustainability perspective, but they are a member of the network and hosting the meeting here. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's always interesting. We've, uh, we actually have two railroad members of, of GBAN, the other being um, the other, the other uh, railroad that, that, competes with uh, Union Pacific and the western half of the United States, which is BNSF, the uh, formerly the Burlington Northern Santa Fe. But Union Pacific is, you know, it's 32,000 miles of routes in 23 states west of Chicago and New Orleans. Dates back to 1862. It was part of the first transcontinental railroad, you know, that famous picture where they drive the Golden Stake when they, uh, you know, back in uh, whenever that was in the 1800s, when the eastbound and westbound tracks met, that was Union Pacific. And um, so here to learn about railroads while we have a bunch of companies come together to talk about all that they're doing. We went to the Harriman Dispatching Center, which is the, the central nervous system of the railroad uh, where they manage the locomotives and the crews and the dispatches for the entire network. It's, it's always pretty cool. We did the same thing, I have to say, at BNSF Railroad, um, Fort Worth, Texas, where they're headquartered. It's so confusing because BNSF is owned by uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which is based here in Omaha, but BNSF is based in uh, is in in Texas, and, and Union Pacific, which is owned differently, is here in Omaha. So um, I get confused all the time. But. Actually, I'm wondering, Harriman is that named for a place or a person? Because I I'm thinking maybe it's named for a person. Yes, it is. It's named for Avril Harriman, who uh, famous Democratic politician, businessman, and diplomat, mm-hmm. uh, who and. Founder of the park out here near me. Is that right? Okay. Yep. He was yep. the governor. He was the 48th governor of New York, as well as the Secretary of Commerce under Harry S. Truman. And in the 30s and 40s, he was the chairman of Union Pacific Railroad. There's a big park just north of me um, named for him. Uh, he, he dedicated all sorts of land so uh, near Bear Mountain. So it's, it's, it's quite lovely, and it's a place I go hiking often. Well, you know, let's get back on track with the Weekend Review. So we had a piece from our editor at large, John Elkington, good friend of ours, good friend of mine, uh, at Avolans Ventures uh, in in London, and um, he's been he's he's the guy who uh, twenty years ago coined the term triple bottom line, and he's uh, this year he spent a bunch of this year the twentieth anniversary rethinking that term. He he sort of announced a a product recall. Of a of a coinage of triple bottom line, um, and thinking about you know is it really uh, is it really working? Is it really making sense? And I guess the, for me, you know the 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 pithy line here is that he says the triple bottom line's goal from the outset was system change. It was never supposed to be just an accounting framework. And the point is, is that that's how a lot of companies, they talk about the triple bottom line. What it really means is they're accounting in a bottom line sort of way for uh, not just the financial, but the environmental and social impacts of what they do. And so, you know, the good news is that he created a meme. Bad news is that the meme isn't taking, w- taking us where he originally intended it to go. 
And so he's he's going through this very public process of of recalling it and saying, you know, there's a defect here. Something needs to be changed. Something needs to be fixed. What that is, he doesn't necessarily yet have the the, the remedy, but he's been uh, he, he sort of uses this piece along with a a piece he did uh, this summer in uh, HBR Harvard Business Review on this topic to just uh, sort of expound on on what may be wrong here and what is this fact-finding phase that they're in right now on what he calls the TBL recall. So be interesting stuff. Yeah, and for me, this is like a, a little bit of a history lesson because my focus on sustainability and green technology and green business is is less lengthy than yours. And so for me, this is like a, a great kind of exercise in understanding, you know, what that term meant, because I've always sort of taken that term for granted. Um, and when he did announce his recall, I thought, wow, you know, I mean, it's just for me, um, I learned uh, this particular piece addresses the, the example of Novo Nordisk, which is which is a great example of a company that actually listened and saw saw sales uh, plummet from not listening to this this meme, if, if you will, when it was initially introduced. But then when it did, um, it, it really made some changes internally and, and really, uh, I'll say, I'll use the word forced, forced its employees to look more closely at this and link it to the, the bottom line, if you will. He also used the um, example of a, a more recent situation, not to diss any particular company, but um, he just talks about the body, the body shop, um, which I, initially, when it was announced, uh, you know, created, was very much focused on um, the the whole triple bottom line concept, and was was a pretty good, you know, you can give us more examples of it, I, I think for sure in detail. But when it was bought. Um, back in 2006 by L'Oreal, which at the time wasn't really focused as much on this. Um, you know, it, you could see its sort of sensibilities and the way it acted and the way it operated change. But now it's been resold, if you will, um, to Natura. Or is it, is it pronounced Natura in Brazil, the, the company Natura? I pronounce it Natura. Natura. Uh, I guess if you're Portuguese, you would pronounce it correctly. I'm sorry. But he, he mentions that they're sort of bringing back that sensibility. So, I mean, yeah, for me, this is like one of those great, I, I love following this because if you're newer to this whole thing, you probably have taken that term for granted. And maybe you just assumed things that weren't necessarily true. So I love it. I'm, I, I appreciate that for that reason. Yeah. And I think I think part of what's going on here, Heather, is that you know, a lot of people who have been around this space for a while, yours truly included, but certainly uh, people like John Elkington, who at, at, who I sat at, you know, and listened, learned from early on, um, are are trying to step things up, trying to shake things up, trying to be a little more disruptive and provocative, and saying, you know, it's amazing, it's great that sustainability is now mainstream, and it's great. It's amazing that all these companies and institutions are doing all these things, but it's still kind of timid. It's still not happening at the scale, scope, and speed we need. And we and some of that is because we mouth the words sustainability and triple bottom line and natural capital and other things, um, you know, thinking we know what they mean and probably, you know, and, and not disingenuously at all, but they mean so much more. And, and if we understand 
how much more they mean. Uh, words matter, and if you know, if it's about setting the right goals, having the right framework, because otherwise we end up, you know, doing the easy stuff, the proverbial low-hanging fruit, and tinkering at the margins, and and not getting where we need to go. So, kudos as always to my pal John Elkington for stimulating these these thoughts, uh, shaking things up, and and being provocative. So. Let's move from provocative to a little bit mundane, but actually practical. Also practical, but also another area of frustration, I have to say, but uh, energy efficiency. So we have a great piece um, contributed by uh, Jennifer Keffer from the David Gardner Group. Um, they're one of the firms that focuses a lot on energy efficiency. Um, and this particular one is industrial, right? So this is at, at the manufacturing level. And she, they've just uh, done a report, um, some research on, uh, you know, pointing to the actual bottom line economic sense, C-E-N-T-S, right, that you see if you focus on this. Um, three really fantastic examples, um, including Cummins, Cargill, and oh, um, here's another one I'm going to mispronounce. Joel, you'll have to help me. ArcelorMittal. I'm not sure I can help okay, you Okay, so that. I'm, I'm going to, I apologize again to my friends, friends there. Uh, I read your name all the time, but can't pronounce it, and I apologize. But the, the point being, energy efficiency um, is, and, and this many people say this is the first um, sort of wave, the, but the energy that you don't have to buy is, is always the, the cleanest, the greenest, etc. And the, the, the more you take out as you transition your, your the supply you buy to renewables or, or, even, or clean, cleaner, if you will, energy is, is important. So this is amazingly simple. So one of them um, spent some time replacing the uh, Fans and motors in one of its factories, Burns Harbor, Indiana, um, in 42, uh, you know, two fans. Right? So they, they had, they, um, they actually, I'm sorry, historically, they had to like replace that many every year. But by changing to variable speed drives, they've only um, had to actually replace a few in the last eight years. So they not only got the energy savings, but they got the equipment savings out of that one. So they've changed to variable speed fans. Um, and by doing so, the equipment lasted longer. So it was just, it's one of those things where it, it's so, I won't say it's simple, but it's very straightforward and, um, you know, also good for operations. So it's just one of those makes sense. Yeah. And, and here's the thing that just bugs the heck out of me about this. And it's not about the piece. Um, I mean, it's a great piece. And I don't know Jennifer, but I know uh, David Gardner uh, for a long time and, you know, great team. It, it's, but it's not about that. It's about the fact that we're still having this conversation about energy efficiency being good. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, that conversation, oh, you can be green and make money too. It's like, well, Come on, let's get past that. We've been past that for so long. But we've been having this conversation about energy efficiency and the low-hanging fruit and the simple things that can be done inside companies and manufacturing in particular that that can save a lot of money and, and improve efficiency and reduce downtime and all that kind of stuff for 30 years, for as long as I've been in this field, and we're still having it. You know, I'm looking at a report that came out about a decade ago from that bastion of of liberal progressive thinking called the National Association of Manufacturers, and um, 
they're you know about as conservative as can be, and they and they did a report on on energy and innovation in the U.S. manufacturing industry, and you know talks talk about all the benefits from cutting costs and raising productivity and improving shareholder value and meeting environmental standards and creating new innovative products and market opportunities and competitiveness and community related anyway on and on and on and. We keep having this conversation, and and the the real sort of proof of the pudding, I guess, is next week during uh, the the Global Climate Action Summit, which we'll talk about shortly, uh, and one of the 350 uh, or so affiliate events I'll be hosting uh, in partnership with um, WRI uh, called Spurring a Building Efficiency Movement in Support of Global Climate Action. And, you know, it's it's kind of about, you know, how the hell do we get energy efficiency on the agenda? I mean, it's not really on the agenda much of this Global Climate Action Summit, this GCAS, this massive event taking place next week with everything from everyone from Al Gore to uh, Paul Pullman to Dave Matthews, you know, on stage. Efficiency will barely be par- part of that, I think. And we're still... Sorry for the rant here, but we're still dealing with this stuff. And so much of this still feels like it's 1997. And yeah. and so we're speaking of, you know, 20 years ago and triple bottom line and people still trying to get it. Energy efficiency is is right up there. This is a whole nother topic and probably a whole nother webcast or podcast. But, you know, I oh, when it, whenever I have this sort of conversation, I always think of the example of because I, you know, I covered technology forever, and I, we we would have these circular conversations, no pun intended, a lot, right? You, you, it seemed like every few years you had to kind of reteach this concept, reteach this kind. New managers came in and so forth, and the the brilliance of Autodesk, the absolute brilliance of Autodesk, when they came out with their CAD software, was they went to the universities, they went to all the design schools, and they made their concept part of the thinking of the, of the of that profession. So I feel like we're in a little bit preaching to the choir, the people already out there. We should be maybe preaching more to the ones that are learning and coming up and going to be the managers of the future. And maybe that, maybe sometimes we focus a little bit too much on, not, not too much, but, you know, we need to uh, divide and conquer, if you will, and spend more time, um, you know, making these kinds of thinking and, and, and processes just part of, just part of the profession, you know? So yeah. I don't know. That's my rant. Yeah, that's all well, good. So let's move on to our third story that we want to talk about this week, which is from uh, another editor-at-large, Alan Atkinson, another old pal of mine from the back to the 20th century, wrote a piece for his North Star column called Why I Went to Work for the Swedish Government. And you're saying, well, what's the deal there? Well, first of all, let's just sort of get some basics here. Alan is uh, is, is an American who's uh, married to Sweden, has been living in Sweden for a fair amount of time and be working as a consultant for uh, a long time. 26 years, in fact, has been a consultant very successfully working with the United Nations and lots of big companies in Europe and the U.S. And we've had him at our Green Biz Conference and he decided to take a job as the Director of Partnership and Innovation and Assistant Director General at an agency called CEDA, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency. 
And so he's decided, as he says, after 26 years of running his own company, working as a strategic consultant, author, and speaker, to become a Swedish civil servant. And it's sort of interesting to see this. And I know a few of my longtime friends and colleagues who, you know, have been uh, had their own consultancies, and then after couple decades or more, they went inside. Uh, Gilfriend is a great example. It became the uh, longtime uh, consultant, runs a company called National, Natural Logic, and became the head of sustainability for the city of Palo Alto, California. You know, it's just uh, bringing that expertise inside is is a great thing. And I, and I like Alan wrote a long piece framing why he did this. He said, I applied for the CETA position for the same reason I started my business 26 years ago. My goal then was to move sustainability thinking and sustainable development practice into the mainstream around the world. That's also my goal now. It also happens to be the goal of the Swedish government. So it's, uh, you know, light years from where we are here in the USA, but uh, the Swedish government being as progressive as it is. Um, government has long maintained a strong national political consensus on the goals of uh, dealing with climate change and taking care of ecosystems and fighting poverty and advancing the rights and equality of all people. There's a lot of work being done at the city, company, agency, and school level. And so it's just an interesting place for him to play. Uh, Check out this piece and see just how one person is, is... is looking and if you think about you know this book ended with with what we started talking about John Elkington's piece also based in Europe sort of looking at how veterans of the field uh, are rethinking sustainability and their role in it after all these years So I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous, Joel. I am going to miss the first big climate event of the fall, the uh, Global Climate Action Summit, which is prepping, <laughs> which is building up there for the, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, we've, we've mentioned a couple times earlier, but um, you did a great uh, preview piece. You, you talked to some of the program development crew, uh, many of our old friends from, from NGOs. So, you know, I know you've got some, some job. I know you've got a job there. You've, you've got a role in the summit. So where are you going to be focusing first? So this year uh, is the first, and it may be the only, we don't know yet, Global Climate Action Summit, or GCAS, as it's been come to be called. And this is a three-day event that's um, being held in San Francisco, created by Jerry Brown, the governor of California, my, who sort of, who's ending his fourth and final term as chief executive of the world's fifth largest economy at the end of this year. And then, of course, Michael Bloomberg and Patricia Espinoza, the executive secretary of the UNFCCC project, and and, and some others from India and China. And uh, there's a youth uh, advocate along with this as the co-chair, bringing together, I've been told, about 4,000 people from around the world, cities and businesses, non-state actors, as it's called. This is not a Hollywood term. This is a UN term, a diplomatic term that has to do with non-national governments. So state governments and provincial governments, mayors, uh, NGOs, uh, academics, uh, investors, and of course, businesses large and small. So all these guys will be convening in San Francisco, and you've got 
Paul Pullman from Unilever and Mark Benioff from Salesforce and Kevin Johnson from Starbucks, all CEOs. You've got Al Gore and John Kerry and a whole range of others and Jane Goodall and Alec Baldwin, <laughs> Dave Matthews. Dave Matthews. And, yeah, of course, why not? And so uh, they're going to be doing this three-day summit. But around this summit, during next week in San Francisco, there's going to be more than 350 affiliate events, particularly Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of next week. It's going to be like 80 events a day or 100 events a day. It's just friggin' crazy. And I encourage you to go to globalclimateactionsummit.org and check it out. What I did uh, over the past few weeks is, uh, so there's five key challenges that are going to be the focus of the main event on healthy ecosystems, uh, sustainable communities, land and ocean stewardship, transformative climate investments, and inclusive economic growth. Each one of those five is being led by an NGO. So climate group uh, is, is healthy energy systems, inclusive economic growth, BSR, and so on. I interviewed the CEOs of, well, all four of them were CEOs of those organizations. One of them was uh, just just a major player who's leading their organizations. And to talk about what's this going to look like from the business perspective, how do we think about it? And so I won't get into it, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's a piece that if you're interested in this event and if you're not in San Francisco, you can still pay attention and, and tune into some of the live stream as, as you, Heather, will be doing. So that's sort of the setup. Uh, my role, uh, well, it's a few things. One is I'm a delegate. I'll be at the main event a little bit, but I'll be spending most of my time in the periphery at, at some of the affiliate events. I'll be hosting three of them. One on, as I mentioned earlier, on energy efficiency, uh, working with WRI and Johnson Controls. One on carbon removal, working with a group uh, that uh, at least until Monday has, until next Monday has been called the Center for Carbon Removal. Next Monday, they're announcing a name change to Carbon 180. Oops, I may have spilled the beans. And the last one is something called the Global Climate Action Summit Aviation Climate Action Accelerator. So this is uh, hosted by uh, San Francisco International Airport and United Airlines and a bunch of others to bring a, a group of players together to look at a, the role of aviation and alternative fuels here. So that's just a taste of that's three, that's less than 1% of the events taking place. <laughs> it's going to be kind of nuts. Um, kind so of I'll nuts. be going to some, some of the others as a, as a, as, as just a civilian attendees. And then I'll be a bunch of receptions and parties and music and things. So, excited and uh, exhausted just thinking about it. Well, one of the things I'm going to be lurking on from afar is uh, super pollutants, um, which, you know, I, I haven't really fully appreciated um, until the, the and I don't know, earlier this year, the extent to which we are not, um, we collectively in the sustainability community are not focusing enough on non-carbon dioxide emissions, right? So, the um, the other things that are contributing to climate change in a different way they they could be um, and they're called super pollutants because they have sort of a, a more of a short term um, impact it's like as they are released they they have this like spiky effect if you will um, and one of the things I'm really focusing on is um, the natural gas situation so uh, I'm looking forward to educating myself if you will on on some of these these areas that, frankly, we don't talk enough about um, and that maybe are in the power for us to address in a different way. Um, yeah. 
So I wanted to play some audio from uh, the interviews that I did with um, at least three of the five um, leaders that I spoke to. First up is Aaron Kramer, who's the president and CEO of BSR. And I asked him, what are the key messages at GCAS for business? Here's what he had to say. There's a message that has two parts to it. The first is that climate action is good for business. It's happening. uh, And businesses are reorienting their models Uh, in order to shift to a low carbon and ultimately a net zero economy by the middle of the century. And related to that is the business community is aiming to send a strong signal to policymakers that climate ambition on their part is important and that uh, with the right policy frameworks, businesses can and will go even further in accelerating action on the road to a clean energy economy. So who do you hope will be listening to that message that doesn't yet get that? Well, there are a number of communities that I think could be, uh, to use uh, one of the terms that's being used at the summit, step up further. The first I would say is citizens and consumers. I think that understanding of the, the fact that Uh, Climate change is happening now. It's having a negative impact on economic vitality and security, and that climate action is actually good for our collective economic future. That's something that we hope we'll get through. Secondly, quite obviously, in the United States, elected officials are not aligned behind the vision of a low-carbon economy, and many of them are interfering with uh, climate action. And it's certainly true at the White House, but it's true much more broadly than that. And so we really would like elected officials, particularly in the United States, uh, to see that this is a very broad-based movement, that our collective economic future depends in many ways on decisive action towards climate, and we don't have time to waste. And so we hope that public officials who are not yet acting Uh, to shift our economy will take note of a very broad-based movement uh, and shift their views. And then I asked the same question of Mindy Luber, who's the president and CEO of Ceres, and here's her response. The message really is scale and scope. It is to show that it can be done in a greater way than it's being done now, that we have got to take the inconvenient and difficult steps, if that's what they are, But we've got to be putting more resources through finance into a green economy. Right now, we're at about $340 billion a year going into clean energy. If we want to get to that two-degree scenario, we need to be well past a trillion dollars a year in transformative transportation systems, in transformative energy systems, and frankly, in changing what the fossil fuel industry looks like. So we want to show examples of where it's being done, how it could be done how we get to scale, and frankly, who's doing that in both the financial and in the corporate arenas and the two arenas we're involved with. And if you just look at the investor area, and there's a lot more that needs to be done, I think we'll be showcasing some substantial new investments in a clean energy future. We'll be looking at the work of 290 investors who have come together, whose assets total $29 trillion, a third of the economy saying we need to act on climate and we need every company in our portfolio and certainly the largest 150 emitters to bring their carbon footprint down, to be transparent, to support policy and to be consistent. So we've got ambitious and audacious things going on, but 
it's only a start. We need a lot more. And I think the summit is a perfect opportunity to bring those voices together and to show clear, decision-useful, goal-oriented metrics of what's going on and how we're going to keep track of it and how we're going to make sure it keeps going. And I also talked to Mark Watts, who's the executive director of C40, a network of the world's largest cities committed to addressing ch- climate change. And and I asked him, because we have, you know, all these other climate events and, you know, what's going to be happening here that doesn't happen at other climate events? And here's Mark's answer. I think it's two things. I think it's, it's one, it's the pure interaction between the different non-state actors, which, which is unique. This is just, we've never had a gathering like this and certainly not at this level and, and intensity. And so it's the, the process of bringing it together has really galvanized working relationships between businesses that are leading on climate change, mayors that are leading on climate change, governors, civil society and investors in a way that I think will have really meaningful consequences going forward. And we're making each other more ambitious. We're making each other more aware of barriers and problems and better able to help each other. Um, but then secondly, because of the particular way that, that Governor Brown in particular uh, and Christiana Figueres, whose idea this, this event was, have focused the event on the immediacy of, of global emissions peaking by 2020 and then staying within that really tough boundary of a, a 1.5 degree temperature rise. It's meant that minds have really been focused on major, relatively short-term emission reduction. And, and indeed, the stage time at the event is determined on that basis. You're only going to have people on stage who are standing up and making really major commitments that are consistent with that high ambition profile. And I think that's been really helpful because it's really clarified minds about not just doing something that's good, that's pushing us in the right direction, but what is the real science-based test of what you need to do to say that you're truly tackling climate change. So you can expect us to scramble around and have some really uh, focused stories out of the event. There's no way we can cover all 300. Sorry, folks, but um, we will be spending some time focusing on some trend pieces, and as I mentioned, my, my focus next week will be on the super pollutants issue. And to prep for that, I actually had the great opportunity to speak with um, Bruce Nillis, and he's, he's currently with the Rocky Mountain Institute. He joined them a little bit earlier this year, but you may or may not know him as the founder of the Sierra Club Beyond coal campaign. So his goal was to, to make sure that no new coal plants were start were started, right? So he, and I think there were 150 on the books at the time. And not only has that campaign um, managed to keep those those coal plants from starting, but they have, you know, during that time, um, 270 are, are of the, the remain of the current fleet, right? About 530 of them out there now are now slated to retire. Now, certainly that's not just because of a NGO campaigning. It's very much more so, um, in my mind, a matter of economics. The idea that you would go out and spend millions of dollars in, in 10 years or so to build something like this um, is just ludicrous when you can get solar installations up in a matter of weeks or months. And wind projects certainly take longer, but maybe just a couple of years um, and, you know, the, the economics of the energy in- industry have changed so much. And that's largely due to natural gas, right? And well, I had an uh, opportunity to talk to Bruce about what the impact is um, of all that natural gas. And that's where he's focused now, which I find fascinating. Um, his focus is on, of course, the methane issue. And 
We're now burning in California, for example, um, we're burning as much natural gas in buildings um, as for the power plants. And, you know, we've all been focused on, on transitioning the, the power plants, but not so much buildings. So that's a problem. And um, here is some of Bruce's thinking and, and, and the research he's doing now for um, a climate breakthrough project. And I'm going to be following this issue. I think we should all be focusing on this, especially uh, given his track record. Here's Bruce. So um, I've had the, the last 15 years, as I mentioned, been working in the electric sector largely on replacing coal with clean and preventing the rush to gas. So learn a fair amount about the challenges of gas. What I hadn't realized until a couple of months ago, um, I guess six months ago now, is that the use of gas across all sectors, and gas, unlike coal, is used in multiple sectors. Coal is primarily used in one sector to produce electricity. Natural gas is used in buildings, electric production, and a whole suite of industrial uses. And just the carbon emissions alone from all that gas today exceed the carbon emissions from coal. Not in the electric sector, but across all sectors, the use of gas is now emitting more carbon in the U.S. economy than coal. And these other sectors outside of electricity where emissions have been coming down, these other sectors have not been coming down. So buildings, transport, industry are either flat or increasing. And a lot of that is uh, expanded use of gas. Again, that's the carbon piece. So I've been digging in and trying to understand, okay, how how big is this problem? And some of the first places I've been looking, we're here in California, where it turns out that we're burning more gas in our buildings than we are in our power plants, which I had no idea was a, the problem, a problem. Because as you likely know, in California, there are a ton of programs to reduce carbon emissions in the electric sector. We have a bunch of solar programs, the renewable energy standard, recent 100% commitment of earlier this week. There's a ton of programs to cut fossil fuel use in the electric sector. There have been no programs uh, focused on carbon emissions in the building sector, anything close to what we've done on the electric side. So in doing the digging and then trying to understand, okay, that's the carbon piece, which is we're burning as much gas in our buildings as we are in a power plant. The problem of methane is far worse than we realized a few years ago. Uh, and then just sort of digging into, okay, so it's leaking all the way from it's be, wherever it's being drilled, along the pipes uh, where it's collected, through the interstate pipelines. And then it gets to my neighborhood, and uh, it's leaking all over our neighborhood, the pipes through our neighborhood, and particularly living a mile from a fault line uh, where we get a shake every few months. Uh, there's no way those pipes are not going to be leaking. And then in my own home, behind the meter, no one ever inspects to see if my pipes are leaking. And none of the system is designed for the chronic leak of methane. So we know it's leaking like a sieve. And so in sort of doing this uh, analysis and thinking about what the uh, need is, it's in my mind become crystal clear that the only way to solve both problems, the carbon and the methane problem, is actually uh, replace all of the gas use in buildings and then seal up or repurpose the gas pipelines. That's a pretty radical on its face idea, which to my knowledge is not getting a lot of discussion at this point, but it's a kind of focus um, and opportunity that I'm looking forward to be digging into here with this new uh, funding because 
we got to design a systematic approach to solving this problem. So it's not just replacing an appliance here and an appliance there. It's actually whole building degasification. And there's 70 million buildings in the U.S. that burn either gas, fuel oil, or uh, propane. So the work to, in this sector, in the building sector, at least from what I can tell thus far, is right now going in the wrong direction. The American Gas Association loves to talk about every minute of every day a new home is connected to the gas grid. Well, that means we're losing from a climate perspective in my book, given the carbon and methane emissions. And so how do we slow and reverse that trend and then begin to unplug 70 million homes? So we'll be covering GCAS uh, next week. We'll have a bunch of our Green Biz team over there and uh, Heather uh, covering it from New Jersey and uh, Elsa Wenzel from uh, Orlando, Florida. And we'll be uh, playing pieces of what we've seen uh, over the next two uh, Green Biz 350 podcasts. So stay tuned for that. As I said at the beginning of the program, we're holding our meeting of the Green Biz Executive Network uh, here in Omaha, Nebraska this week at the headquarters of Union Pacific. And I pulled aside Bob Toy, the Senior Director of Environmental Operations and Sustainability here at Union Pacific. Bob, you've been with uh, UP for 28, uh, 29 years. Uh, talk a little bit about how environmental issues have changed or how they're different now than they were back then. Well, uh, in some respects, they're not much different. Um, we were waking up to the fact that uh, compliance was a key issue in the 1990s. I was uh, started in marketing and sales, so a long way away from the environmental world. And yet I vividly recall talking about the environmental policy and how that applied to all of our um, uh, employees. Um, over the years, certainly the air emissions has grown to uh, be a bigger deal, especially in uh, some of our uh, um, bigger states like California, Texas, and Illinois. Uh, we see this issue as well in places now like Oregon and Washington as uh, um, the conversation keeps growing. And the overall environmental compliance uh, um, subject, which is part of what I'm responsible for, that continues to evolve. So um, I don't know that the topics themselves have changed, but certainly the regulations have and how we position ourselves to comply. One thing that's changed is that more and more companies are being asked to look at the environmental impacts on their supply chains. You are the logistics partner for probably everybody in some way, shape, or form. Um, are you being impacted by their wanting to know the carbon footprint of everything including transportation? Yeah, and that's clearly uh, something that's new since uh, I started, that uh, it, that day nobody was asking that kind of a question. Today we send out uh, to um, many of our customers uh, um, an annual footprint number that shows uh, how much uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions that uh, our operation generated or we generated on their behalf. And then also the savings uh, compared to truck, rail is four times more fuel efficient than truck. So it makes it easy for us to show a comparison number that uh, is real for them. So you can actually track that down to uh, an Xbox or, a, or a, a car or whatever you're transporting? Well, um, yes and no. It's uh, complicated how um, business moves or our, our shipments move from one part of the network to another. So to simplify that conversation, we take more of an average and uh, it's close enough for what uh, our customers are looking for. 
What's the role of technology these days in, in, in helping optimize or reduce the environmental footprint? Because every, everything from blockchain to AI, as well as all the basic efficiency measures, I imagine if they're not now part of your operation, they soon will be. Yeah, it's uh, at 32,000 miles of track across 23 states with 40,000 employees. You can imagine that we use technology in a way to just understand how do we move uh, our business even more effectively and efficiently. It's uh, into how our locomotives operate, um, the trains themselves, and what the operating forces are, and how we can uh, use aerodynamics. Um, technology, it, it's interesting. Um, we've used technology in ways for 40, 50 years. We were, we were able to understand what the wind speed was at a yard and uh, allow cars to go down a hump in order to um, form the next train and meet up with the, the car on that train. That was 1970s that we were able to introduce that type of technology. It's obviously evolved from there. So as you look out, say, five years from now, uh, will you still be addressing the same issues, or do you see new and different issues coming up from an environment and sustainability carbon perspective? I think probably the answer is we'll be dealing with the same issues. They'll just look different. We'll see that train coming down the tracks later on. Thank you. Bob Toy is the Senior Director of Environmental Operations and Sustainability at Union Pacific. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Burns is the former Corporate Vice President of Research, Development, and Planning for General Motors, where he was responsible for all manner of innovation. Since 2011, he has been an advisor to the Google Self-Driving Car Project, now called Waymo. And he's just come out with a new book entitled Autonomy, The Quest to Build the Driverless Car and How It Will Reshape Our World. Larry, thank you so much for joining us on GreaseBiz 350. It's my pleasure, Heather. Thanks for having me. Well, we know you, we've known you for a long time, and we know you've been at this for at least seven years and probably more. Has the industry made much progress on, on self-driving cars, on autonomy? Um, has it made as much progress in that seven-year period as you expected? Actually, it moved faster than I would have expected. You know, we had a really important moment. I call it a turning point in, in the book Autonomy in 2007, November 2007, was the DARPA Urban Challenge. That's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And they hosted a race in Victorville, California, $2 million first prize. I kind of joked that uh, GM competed because we needed the money. <laughs> and, but that, in fact, we sponsored Carnegie Mellon University, and we had the pleasure of winning that competition. But, you know, 85 teams entered it. Our vehicle was called Boss. It was a Chevy Tahoe just loaded with hardware. I mean, you could barely squeeze a technician inside the vehicle and all around the outside of the vehicle was filled with hardware. After we won the race um, by 2009-2010, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who had attended that race, they uh, started Google self-driving cars. They felt this was ready to begin the advanced development and research processes to make it truly commercially viable. By then, all that equipment was fitting in the, the back of a, of a Prius, in the trunk area of a Prius. And um, the, the Larry and Sergey set some pretty ambitious goals for, for the team to prove out a proof of concept. 
And now Waymo, which is the spinoff of Google Self-Driving Cars, has just passed the 9 million mile mark on public road learning. And that's, that's a remarkable safety record in doing that. They've had one at-fault fender bender at two miles an hour during that time. And um, getting very, very close to having learned what needs to be learned to turn this into a commercial uh, proposition. So you might say that's a long time, 11 years from 2007. But given the sophistication of what is being done here, it's just remarkable progress, Heather. What does it mean that you're an advisor? I mean, what, what is it that you're specifically um, helping them figure out? Well, when um, Larry and Sergey put the team together, it was led by Sebastian Thrun and um, Chris Ermson. And um, I got to know both of them through the DARPA Urban Challenge. And in uh, late 2010, they were looking for what we jokingly call a, a gray beard auto executive who really understood the auto industry. And um, you know, I was um, on my encore career post GM at that point in time, and it was the kind of person they were looking for. They, they've asked me to help them think about the future business, to help them interface with the auto companies, to help them understand uh, regulations, understand the supply base, very importantly, understand transportation broadly. I led a program uh, for sustainable mobility at Columbia University, which was the first research project to really quantify the potential transformational benefits of autonomous vehicles combined with electric vehicles in a business model called transportation service where you tailor design the vehicle. So brought a lot of that experience to the project. So pretty much anything I could do to help. My relationship is what's called a retainer base. A relationship is about 20% of my time and I'm on my eighth year advising them in these areas. What sorts of vehicles do you think will be among the first that are disrupted by autonomy? Are, are we talking passenger vehicles? Are we talking trucks? Can you describe the adoption curve a little bit? I'm just, you know, we vehicle is such a broad term. Yeah, I'm excited about the use of driverless vehicles across all those use cases. Um, let's talk about over-the-road trucks. Uh, there's a shortage of truck drivers. Um, those trucks cost about 64 cents per mile for labor. That's wages and benefits. It's a tedious job, uh, uh, and the uh, drivers get distracted, and uh, there's about 3,000 fatalities tied to over-the-road truck crashes. So it's a real important opportunity. And what's interesting about over-the-road trucks is the freeway system isn't homogeneous. There's a lot of variation from roads that are flat, straight, with nice weather and, and relatively modest traffic intensity, the roads that are curvy and mountainous with snow. So you can actually <clears throat> do a very risk-managed introduction following the guidelines of what's called Level 4 Autonomous Vehicles, where you have this predefined envelope within which uh, you're uh, approved to operate uh, safely and really get on with, with the over-the-road trucking. The last-mile package goods delivery, I mean, I work out of my home office, and there's days, literally, Heather, where I have a FedEx and a UPS truck in my driveway at the same time dropping off packages that our families ordered. So this um, changes a lot. These vehicles that arrive today are 4,000, 5,000 pound delivery trucks with a 150 to 200 pound person bringing it to my porch and the, the package weighs usually less than a pound and that seems kind of crazy. So I think this last mile delivery has some promise. With people movement, uh, people movement in in communities, some of this will be done in lower speed communities. A lot of uh, players other than Waymo are are trying to get into the gated communities and, and campuses at lower speeds. And then certainly Waymo is focused on fully autonomous, you know, no driver in the loop, and they're 
learning a lot with the fleet in the hundreds in the um, Phoenix area and moving customers, early adopters in the hundreds around in that community. So it's hard to predict which one's going to tip first, but I certainly see huge value in all those use cases. You know, many of those use cases are very urban or suburban. You know, the, the, the package example uh, is definitely uh, something I see, by the way. I see that all the time in my driveway, too. Um, but how will this affect rural communities? Yeah, it, yes, yes. And um, I think... It's interesting, the first DARPA challenges were done in the desert where there weren't roads, there were ruts, and there were boulders. And so there's nothing about the technology that says it is not amenable to driving in, in rural areas. Um, it's, it's, though that's not where most of the miles are driven. Most of the miles are driven in suburbs and in, in cities. So if you're trying to create a business out of it, you want to get, get to where the value is. An interesting way in which it's already impacting rural areas is in the agricultural industry with autonomous tractors that are proving a variety of ways of doing very precise um, agricultural work with, with the driverless tractor. So I think it's going to benefit all over the place. I'm really glad you mentioned suburbs. A lot of people immediately switch to an urban mindset when they start talking about transportation, but only 26% of Americans live in cities. 53% of us live in suburbs. And um, the work we did at Columbia indicated that if population densities are, let's say, above about 700 people per square mile, 800 people per square mile, which most of our suburbs are like that, these uh, businesses of, of shared autonomous vehicles work really well. So I think the population densities are sufficient in our suburbs to really have meaningful impact there as well as in cities. Now, clearly, lots of very powerful companies um, from both the tech industry as well as the automotive industry are working on this, this opportunity, this challenge, however you want to frame it. Um, what can they do to be collaborating together better? Well, we're making good progress there. Um, you know, Autonomy, the book, uh, tells the stories of the early days where the people in Silicon Valley really, quite honestly, didn't show a whole lot of respect for what the automobile industry does on a daily basis, which is pretty remarkable in terms of the complexity of cars and the environments they operate in. At the same time, the auto industry was just simply slamming the door in the faces of the early developers of the driverless car system, finding it somewhat irresponsible that they were developing the technology on public roads and seeing this as maybe a 20 or 30 year opportunity, not something that was right around the corner. As this story played on from you know the 2010 timeframe to today, I think it's clear that there is an important codependence. And I think that's represented in the fact that when Google was ready to turn this into a commercial business by creating Waymo as the spinoff Alphabet company, they tapped John Kraftchuk to be the CEO. And John is a very seasoned automotive executive. And uh, they felt John's knowledge of the auto industry and his relationship building skills to create collaborations with auto companies was going to be central to the future of success. At the same time, about a year later, GM um, reached out to Cruise Automation, a Silicon Valley-based technology company, to be their partner in developing their autonomous driving system. So it took seven or eight years for, for both sides of this, Silicon Valley and, and Detroit, as a metaphor for the auto industry, to really realize it's an and, it's not an or. And um, I, I think that's exciting. To, to bring value, you need the self-driving system, the world's best autonomous driver, and you need vehicles to put it on. Uh, so those are both necessary conditions for 
value creation here. And so the collaboration, I think, is important. One final question, although we could probably spend a whole hour on this one alone. What safety and privacy concerns deserve more attention as we move forward? Well, um, the important thing on, on the safety front is that it's about learning. And I'm not saying this needs more attention because I believe Waymo is really on top of this. You need to learn with real people and real vehicles, taking real trips, and truly understanding the remaining things that need to be discovered. If I told you we were creating a speech recognition system and that it was 99% of the words it could recognize, you'd say, that's pretty good. I think it would work for me. But if I said your self-driving car could handle 99% of the situations it's encounters, you'd say, no, that doesn't work for me. Americans travel three trillion miles, so we got to get out on that 99.9999 kind of a tail of learning, and that can only be done on public roads, and the learning processes, and again, Waymo should be very proud of how they do this, they have to be very disciplined processes, very safety conscious processes in order to do the discovery that remains. Driverless cars will be remarkably safer than human-driven cars. 90% of the crashes today are due to human error. 1.3 million people are dying on the world's roadways. If we can get to the full potential of driverless cars one day sooner, it's going to save 3,000 lives. So there's an urgency here, but it has to be a risk management, managed learning process to get to that full potential. On cybersecurity, very important question. I don't think it's an issue that's unique to self-driving cars. Um, airlines, rail systems, um, our financial systems, our medical systems, so much of our life now is tied to digital technology and there's risks of hacking going on with election systems. So some of these, if there's a hack, does not put you in a situation where you can get in a serious crash. So these are extremely important questions for, for driverless cars. And I think there's a lot of brilliant minds working hard to to make our systems as robust as they can be to make sure we get value out of them. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Larry. Appreciate your time. Good luck with the book. Thank you very much, Heather. Appreciate your interest. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this time around. While you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>